And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you, as we do each week when we come together, to be here with us. And we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this is the first Sunday after Epiphany, the Sunday on which the church traditionally celebrates the baptism of Jesus. Now, Epiphany itself was on Friday after the 12 days of Christmas and is traditionally associated with the visit of the wise men to baby Jesus in the manger. But there are actually three remembrances that are traditionally associated with Epiphany season. There's the visit of the wise men, like I said, which we ordinarily fold into our Christmas celebration, although we do celebrate it in a special way when Epiphany itself falls on a Sunday. Uh, There is the baptism, which we are remembering today, and there's also Jesus' first miracle at a wedding in Cana, turning water into wine, which we specifically remember once every three years in our liturgical cycle through the Bible. These are all three associated with Epiphany because they, each on their own and as a set, are about a special kind of revelation, a revealing, a realizing about who Jesus really is. That's what having an epiphany means, a new and sudden revelation. This child, so recently born into the world, is special. Now, the wise men, the magi or kings, come to Bethlehem following a star, and a new kind of king is revealed to them, an eternal king, a king of everything. So revelatory is this experience that after the kings kneel down and pay homage to the baby Jesus, you'll remember that they disobey Herod, who had asked them to go find the baby and then come back and report to him, telling him where the baby is. They go back home by a different route. They've had an epiphany. Jesus is a revelation to them. He causes a new realization. Now, now that Jesus has come, everything is different. And when Jesus works his first miracle at this wedding in Cana, it's sort of a going public moment. The realization that the wise men had, they're sort of in private at the manger, and a few disciples have heard about by this time, begins now from this wedding to spread. All of a sudden, Jesus' ministry is out there in a way that it wasn't before. In fact, as you'll remember, he tries to tell his mother that now's not the time. But we all know what happens when you try to tell your mother what's going to happen. Jesus eventually does the miracle, and it's a revelation to everyone. And the word 
starts to get out. Another revelation. This is a miracle worker. And the third revelation of this triptych, although admittedly not in chronological order, is what we are here to celebrate this morning. Jesus' baptism by John in the River Jordan and his public revelation as God's beloved son. That's epiphany. Jesus is revealed again. He is king, he is miracle worker, and he is son of the most high God. But before we get to the baptism text in Matthew chapter 3, I want to press rewind for a second, take us back. Those of you who have been here through Advent and Christmas will remember that we spent those seasons in the book of the prophet Isaiah, looking at the prophetic word about the coming Messiah and how he would enter into the bleak and broken world in which we now live and usher in not only a new heavens and a new earth at the end of time, but that he would actually be good news for us now, today. And Jesus, in his coming, Isaiah insists, accomplishes for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. He saves us for eternity And he completely reorients our hearts even now into a new relationship with God. A relationship not based on fear, but in peace. So Isaiah's predictions come to fruition in Jesus. And at Christmas, we celebrated sort of the first step of this. Jesus become incarnate. The Son of God coming from holy heaven to sinful earth. Jesus comes into the dark dungeons of this sinful world, into our very sinful hearts, and he liberates us by becoming sin for us. He liberates us, sets us free to live a new life in light of this peace and grace and love. And that was the story of Advent and Christmas. And now, after The other assigned reading we have for us this morning from Isaiah 42, we have this description of God going public with his Messiah, with his Savior, and describing what this rescue mission is going to look like. It's kind of like a save-the-date announcement for a destination wedding. This is coming, the announcement says, and it's going to be great. And as we'll see in a moment, when we read about the coming in the New Testament, it is great. This is going to be another one of these going public moments, another time in which everyone realizes that nothing is going to be the same ever again. But first, I want to spend just a second talking about the save the date announcement from several hundred years earlier. Here is my servant whom I uphold announces Almighty God in Isaiah 42. My chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not quench. 
he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint until or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his teaching. This is the kind of introduction we would all want. I remember uh, back in the 90s when I was watching baseball, when Mariano Rivera was the closer for the Yankees. Anybody know any of these names? This is the Derek Jeter, Andy Pennant, Jorge Posada Yankees. Anybody with me here? Come on. Come on. These, these Yankees won four out of five World Series from 1996 to 2000. I remember when Yankees games would get into the eighth or ninth inning with the Yankees ahead, people would start checking the bullpen. Was Mariano Rivera, the closer, warming up? See, the closer on a baseball team is the pitcher that gets brought in right at the end to close the door on the other team, to finish off the victory, to put the nail in the other team's coffin. And Rivera was the best. And so when the Yankees were ahead and the end of the game was in sight, the question on everyone's mind was, has Rivera started warming up? Because if he was, well, that meant the game was over. Rivera seemed unbeatable. So when Joe Torre, the manager, came out to the mound and raised his right hand to signal, and the Yankee Stadium audio guy would start playing Enter Sandman by Metallica, the crowd would just go berserk. Their guy was coming in, and it pretty much spelled the end for the other team. The Yankees were going to win again. Anytime... Mariano Rivera made that long walk from the bullpen to the mound. The city of New York staked its reputation on his performance. He was their guy, and with him, they were going to win. And as far as human beings go, Mariano Rivera on a pitcher's mound is pretty darn good. He almost never let them down. But in a really cheesy preacher way, I'm going to say that our Savior is even better now, Ray Ortland, in his great commentary on Isaiah, the one that our ladies are using in their Bible study, says that these verses that we just read in Isaiah 42 are God staking his reputation on Jesus. God proves he is God, writes Ortland, as Jesus Christ delivers us from the darkness of our idolatries opens our eyes to his glory, and brings us out of our self-created dungeons. Through Christ, God is showing how committed he is to us idolaters by leading us into newness. He will not withdraw his covenant of grace, though we often break it by our emotional attachment to other gods. God will make his love known to us. He will love us until we finally get it. He stakes his honor on that. Therefore, we are not confined to our abominations and prisons. God saves us not by telling us to lose ourselves in some vaguely defined cosmic all, but by taking upon himself at his cross all the wrongs we've done. And by giving back to us our truest selves that we lost so long ago. That is how God proves he is really God. 
from the first half of Isaiah's prophecies. You'll remember from all of these weeks, as we heard all throughout Advent, almost always involve a sobering depiction of what life in a fallen world is like. Sin, famine, deserts, war, enmity, strife, things displeasing to God. But Isaiah sees a glorious future. The same world, but redeemed. And how? By the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God doesn't wait for this world or its inhabitants, us, to get our act together, to destroy our idols, and to get to him. This is what Christmas is all about. He comes in Jesus to us. Two sinners, two idolaters to prove that he is really God. He came at Christmas and now at Epiphany. He is ready to present his rescue mission to the world. He's ready to go public. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then it actually happened. God proved that he was God. If the crowd at Yankee Stadium went crazy every time Joe Torre pointed at Mariana Rivera and Enter Sandman started playing, all of creation sat on the edge of its seat when John the Baptist stood waist deep in the Jordan River, pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Enter Sandman has nothing on that. I mean, standing here before you this morning, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin the world. And then, as we read this morning, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Our Savior has gone public. We have Jesus Christ. He is ours. And as long as we have him, victory is assured. Into this world of sin and famine and deserts and war and enmity and strife and all manner of things displeasing to God, God sends a Redeemer, Jesus Christ the righteous. John recognized his righteousness and tried to refuse to baptize him. Are you joking, he said? Me? Baptize you? But like Ortland said, God is showing how committed he is to us idolaters. 
God will make his love known to us. He will love us until we finally get it. He stakes his honor on that. And this is how God makes his love known. Jesus for you. His righteousness for your sinfulness. His goodness for your badness. The voice of God says that the Almighty is well pleased with this, his saving son. And that announcement is made with the whole story of salvation in mind. The entire plan laid out in advance. Listen to how this works. Last week, we remembered Jesus' circumcision on the eighth day. The official name of the feast that we celebrated last week was, quote, the circumcision and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why on earth would we take the time out of the church year to celebrate Jesus' circumcision of all things? Well, when you combine that with the feast this week, when we remember his baptism, you can see why it's important. Jesus was obedient to God's law, to the letter, and from the beginning. That's what we're celebrating. Jesus' legal obedience down to circumcision and baptism. He kept the law in his body and he did it for you. The sinful law breaker. And so this is the good news of Christ's gospel. By his life and death and resurrection, he pleased Almighty God, and then made God's pleasure his gift to you. You have been rescued, not because of anything you've done or are doing or will ever do. You have been rescued on account of what Jesus Christ has done for you. 2,000 years ago, Jesus took on our humanity and did it perfectly. Circumcision. Baptism, life, death. And because of that perfection, when God looked at his newly baptized son, he could say with a voice booming from heaven, I love him. With him, I am well pleased. And then on the cross, a great exchange. Jesus became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God. What was yours, sin, became Christ's. What was Christ's, beloved sonship, becomes yours. And so today, God looks at you, a redeemed sinner, clothed in Christ, a recipient of Christ's own righteousness, Christ's own goodness, and says, because of my son, because of what he accomplished, because of his obedience, because of him, I love you. The announcement made to Christ at his baptism has now, on account of his righteousness and by adoption in his name, been applied to you. Because of Jesus... Almighty God looks at you, a sinner, and announces for all eternity to hear, with you, 
Yes, even you, I am well pleased. Believe that. And today it is true for you. Amen.